This episode of the Australia in the World podcast is produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs, an independent non-profit organisation promoting interest in and understanding of international affairs in Australia by providing a forum for discussion and debate. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers themselves and not the institutional views of the AIIA. Hello. Well, after surviving our first attempt at this podcasting business, both a learning and a very humbling experience, we are back here again. This is our new podcast called Australia in the World, and my name is Darren Lim, and I teach in the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University. And again, with me here in this tiny studio in the ANU's Crawford School is Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs, the AIIA, in partnership with whom we are producing this podcast. Good afternoon, Alan. Hi there, Darren. Okay, well, after our pilot episode two weeks ago covered a single topic, the rules-based international order, today we are going to pivot, or you might say rebalance, towards the format that we are planning on using for most future episodes. To begin today, we are going to talk about current events that have been making headlines in the news not because we're necessarily experts on every topic, but more as curious observers. And our plan is simply to talk about what's interesting to us personally about these news items, viewed, of course, through a uniquely Australian lens. Following that, the plan is to do a little bit of a deeper dive into a particular issue or theme each episode, either on our own or with the help of a special guest. Today, it's just us, and after discussing the news, we're going to be talking about the United States and what its purported decline, perhaps relative, perhaps absolute, means for Australia and our alliance relationship. Okay, so that's the plan. Let's get started. On today's episode, in the news segment, we're going to talk about elections in Pakistan and Cambodia, Western efforts to build an alternative to China's Belt and Road Initiative, and the recent Osmin talks between the foreign ministers and defence ministers of Australia and the United States. And we'll use that last topic as a launch pad to do a deeper dive into Trump's America and what the future holds for the alliance relationship. So first, turning to Pakistan. So Pakistani voters went to the polls on the 25th of July, and as was widely expected, Imran Khan and his Pakistan Movement for Justice Party, the PTI, won the most seats and will likely lead the new government. Now, the election itself was not without controversy. Um, For one thing, the incumbent Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif was actually in jail, and both his party and the other major party have disputed the results. But here in Australia, we of course know Imran Khan from Pakistan's 1992 Cricket World Cup victory, which they won on Australian soil. And my personal memory of him was that he married this beautiful English heiress, Jemima, um, and he, I have this sense of him as this sort of cosmopolitan playboy in the 1990s. But it turns out, um, and I didn't know this until recently, that he entered Pakistani politics in the late 1990s. And over the last sort of close to 20 years, he has fashioned himself uh, into a a very effective politician, somewhat populist, uh, a born-again Muslim, uh, and transforming his image and charisma that was as a cricketer uh, rather uh, into one that appeals to Pakistani voters, in particular the religious right in Pakistan, Um, through his support for things like blasphemy laws um, and lately a very conservative wife, albeit his third. And he's also been a fierce critic of the United States. 
So what we want to talk about is what it sort of means that he is likely to become Pakistan's next prime minister. My first question for you, Alan, is why should we in Australia care about Pakistan? You know, other than cricket, uh, I imagine the answer has something to do with nuclear weapons, the war in Afghanistan, or perhaps concerns about Islamic extremism. You know, what's your perspective? Well, you've just given the answer to your own question, really. <laughs> okay. Why should we uh, care about uh, Pakistan? The answer is all of the above, all of the things that you, uh, uh, you talked about. Um, here's a country with you know, just under 200 million uh, people in a part of the world that uh, is exceedingly dangerous for, for, for a number of, uh, of reasons. Let's begin with nuclear. I mean, if, you, if you're concerned about nuclear conflict in the world, the place where this is possibly more likely than any other is in the, uh, in the border between India and uh, Pakistan. So there's a danger of nuclear conflict. There's also a danger of nuclear proliferation. Pakistan, after all, was the uh, home of A.Q. Khan, the, the um, father of the Pakistani nuclear program, who we later discovered had been uh, in, engaged in um, in uh, selling the secrets of the Pakistani program to Libya, North Korea, uh, and uh, and Iran, so there's a you know there's a track record there that would cause us to be uh, to be worried if Saudi Arabia ever wanted uh, a nuclear bomb. That's almost certainly the place that it would uh, look to. Uh, similarly, um, you can't really resolve the problem in Afghanistan if indeed the problem in Afghanistan is resolved mm-hmm. uh, without, uh, without the active engagement of uh, Pakistan. Uh, it remains a centre for, um, for the dissemination of uh, some of the more extreme branches of uh, Islamism. So I've been you know, following the news on this over the past few weeks and in almost every article I've read, the finger has been pointed towards the Pakistani military, which we know has a long history of involvement in Pakistani politics, going right back to Pakistan's founding and then the split with Bangladesh. Uh, And there is this assumption that the reason that Khan was elected was because he had the support of the military and that if we're thinking about the kinds of concerns you discussed, uh, the first place to look at is, is the military itself. But when I think about Imran Khan and my memories of him are very positive, right, as a, as a cosmopolitan international cricketer, I feel intuitively a bit happy or a bit relieved that someone who, you know, I have a history with as an Australian might be, you know, having the codes to the nuclear weapons and, and, might, uh, and would be in, in some way able to control some of the biggest concerns we have regarding proliferation, regarding war with India, notwithstanding what he might have said on the, on the, on the campaign trail um, and his hostility towards the United States and, and to some extent towards India. Yeah. Are my instincts correct? Should we, should we feel reassured by someone that we know with history or do you think he might have changed you know, to such an extent that we, we can't really think about his past as being any guide to what, we, what Pakistan might do over the coming years? I wouldn't feel re- reassured, but I would suspend judgment, I think, at this uh point in time it's um uh nothing else has worked very well in uh in Pakistan which uh, we've had a a succession of uh governments which have uh which have failed to address the underlying 
uh, problems facing the country, including an education system, uh, which is uh, a mess, yes. uh, an economy which is not uh, working uh, properly, uh, a, a society which has um, sort of been manipulated by the elites in lots of ways, and the mm-hmm. elites include uh, elements of the uh, of the uh, army. So uh, I think we just uh, we wait and see. Uh, um, he, the, the new the new government will face huge and immediate um, uh, economic uh, and social problems, and we'll just have to see how he uh, copes with them. Let, let, me, let me ask you a related uh, question, though. Um, one of the main elements in the Belt and Road Initiative of China has always been the uh, China-Pakistan Economic uh, Corridor. Um, Pakistan's received around $60 billion in Chinese loans in an ambitious attempt to link uh, Xinjiang and Western China with the Arabian Sea via the Karakoram uh, Highway. And um, uh, this has led to anxiety in uh, in many different um, quarters. Um, as Khan takes over, though, as I say, he's going to face an immediate economic crisis, including a huge balance of payments uh, deficit. And there's talk that he's going to have to go to the uh, IMF almost immediately. So what does this tell us? Uh, um, how, how does the um, uh, China story factor into the um, problems that Khan is going to face? Yes, that's a very interesting question, not least of which, as I understand, his election platform was very populist to the extent that he was promising a Pakistani welfare state. And so that's going to require a lot of resources. And if you face a huge balance of payments deficit, where is the money going to come from? And so he himself, in order to establish his political legitimacy early on, is going to need to find money somewhere. But as you said, Alan, the country is facing a severe macroeconomic crisis. So the question is, where does that money come from? And if I'm the Chinese, I've already spent you know, $60 billion and actually have uh, given some emergency bailout funds in, in recent times. I'm not sure I'm going to want to necessarily pay even more money without any, any additional return. But if you're the IMF and you're asked to provide sort of bridge financing to pay the bills in the short term, you are going to be asking questions around, well, why are you in this mess in the first place? Is it because you racked up billions of dollars of debt without any good oversight, transparency, without ensuring that the projects were you know, vetted and, and, and guaranteed to offer a good rate of return? And I understand that actually uh, a bunch of US senators in the past few days um, have expressed their view that the IMF shouldn't be subsidising uh, you know, Chinese you know, financing and if you know, which you're bailing out China essentially. That if if the debt is to China and and it, and it wasn't it was created in a way that wasn't you know, prudent, um, then this international organisation shouldn't be stepping in. And so I suppose you know that that's true, but it also creates potentially an opportunity for the IMF to say yes, maybe we'll provide you with uh, some financing now in the short term, but in return we're going to require you to open your book and as part of the conditions attached to this financing, um, show the world what is the true nature of these loans um, and through what pathways or mechanisms did we arrive at this point? You know, How can the mechanisms of Chinese financing uh, and indeed all of the debt that Pakistan um, owes, what lessons can we learn from that? Um, and given the debates around 
you know, the geopolitics, the geoeconomics of China's Belt and Road and concerns around what is often called debt trap diplomacy, the idea that countries, you know, rack up these large bills, receive assets that don't generate a good rate of return and then have to give up the assets um, when they run out of money. Perhaps the IMF can be an interesting vehicle through which improved standards of transparency and, and quality investments uh, can be, you know, these lessons can be learned. I don't know, Alan, do you, do you agree with that or? Well, I'd just say that <coughs> Pakistan's been going to the IMF for bailout since the uh, 1980s. It has a do- over a dozen, I think, yes. <laughs> hasn't, uh, uh, hasn't worked so far. So um... it just strikes me that there is a different dynamic now, that it's not just we have a country that has, through you know, poor macroeconomic decisions, maybe some bad luck, maybe some tumultuous domestic politics, all of which applies to Pakistan. It's not simply a situation where this country is, is asking for a, you know, a bailout or potentially going to ask for a bailout. There is this new dynamic now and this new set of interests regarding the Belt and Road and the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, which is really you know, the poster child of the Belt and Road Initiative. And I think it's not just in China's interests that it work, um, but it's in the interests of everybody else that it is done in a way that maximises um, the return to the local population, but also minimises some of the strategic downsides that arise when countries become in de- severely indebted and have to give up strategic assets or make other kinds of concessions in order to uh, secure debt relief. And so the, the, the IMF, the, I don't mean knowing nothing about the dynamics of IMF bailouts uh, in this particular situation, and even acknowledging that history, I do wonder whether... the IMF can see this as a new opportunity to insert itself, you know, given its expertise in in how to do financing, we presume, um, to, to, you know, to to achieve this additional benefit. I don't know. You're shaking your head, Alan. You're a bit (laughs) sceptical. Okay, well, we'll move on then uh, to our next news item. Um, which is Cambodia, which also had an election. Uh, Hun Sen, who's the world's longest-serving prime minister since 1985, and his ruling party were re-elected uh, to nobody's surprise. And this has been called a sham election uh, due to the jailing of political opposition, bans on major opposition parties, and the closing of independent media organisations. There is currently legislation in the US Congress proposing sanctions on Hun Sen, and our own Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, DFAT, stated that it would not send diplomats to monitor the elections in order to avoid legitimising a clearly compromised electoral process. Many opposition supporters also boycotted the election as part of a clean finger campaign. Now, Australia has faced calls to reject the election results and criticism over a champagne photo op last year when a new memorandum of understanding was signed between the Australian and Cambodian governments. There has also been um, there have also been protests among Australia's Cambodian population, and ANU's own Chancellor Gareth Evans said on a Four Corners interview that personal sanctions on Cambodia's leaders may be necessary as the only effective policy tool that Australia has left. So, Alan, my question for you is: What can we do? You know, it feels like in an earlier period, countries like Australia and the United States could achieve real gains through criticising these elections and imposing sanctions. But the situation feels a bit more helpless now. You know, what options does Australia have uh, in responding to these kinds of you know, sham elections? Do we need to engage or do we need to criticise? What's the balance to strike here? Well, it was clearly a you know, very flawed uh, election campaign. The problem for Australia is that 
according to the uh, Economist Intelligence Unit's Democracy Index, every country in East Asia, apart from Australia and New Zealand, um, uh, falls under the category uh, categories ranging from flawed democracy to authoritarian <laughs> state. Okay. So um, it's not going to it's not going to be um, easy for us. Now, this isn't to say that you can't make judgments. Japan is obviously more democratic than China. And yes. India is obviously more democratic than um, than Pakistan. Um, but this is a, a spectrum along mm-hmm. which all the countries in the uh, in the region lie. Now, I think. Cambodia has proved itself at one end of the spectrum and uh, we should make clear, as I think we have, that we do not believe that a proper democratic uh, um, election was held. But beyond that, there's not very much we can do to, uh, to change the outcome. And I certainly don't think that the imposition of uh, sanctions uh, would... Uh, would work, particularly given the uh, support that uh, Cambodia would receive, not and not not just from China, but from the other ASEAN members as well, probably. Well, then stepping back out, sort of to the grander strategic perspective, you know, Cambodia is notorious among strategists for some of the actions it's taken uh, within ASEAN itself. Uh, blocking a statement in 2012 regarding the South China Sea and again in 2016 regarding the arbitral ruling that the Philippines uh, secured in what was support, thought to be an important legal victory. And so it seems to me that you know, Cambodia, the Cambodian government of Prime Minister Hun Sen sees its interests being very closely aligned with China at the expense in this case of unity within ASEAN. Now during the recent election campaign, China announced a new infrastructure project and criticised proposed sanctions by the EU. Now, China's investment is about half of all foreign investment in Cambodia. But what's, I think, especially interesting is that China's ambassador even attended a ruling party rally during the campaign. You know, what strategic conclusions should Australia be drawing you know, from these developments? You know, should we be viewing Cambodia as you know, essentially taking uh, the Chinese side you know, for indefinitely or... What's our? What's your read on the situation? Well, one of the readings of the situation is how things uh, how things change. Um, Cambodia has always, um, or China rather, has always had an interest in Cambodia, but for uh, for many years, of course, it was the uh, principal external supporter of the Khmer Rouge. Yeah, and uh, the person uh, who's now. <laughs> now their um, their uh, their key friend in um, in Cambodia was the uh, uh, person who ousted the previously China supported uh, regime. So it's a reminder that in international relations um, things uh, do change. As you as you say, really the the central question, um, and it, this is not the only case where this comes up, is whether it's better for Australia and other outside powers to. Uh, to keep involved, uh, to keep engaged, to offer um, alternative pathways for the Cambodian uh, government or whether it's better to say, no, uh, it's all over, Um, uh, we're out of here. And um, I mean, you wouldn't break diplomatic relations or anything, but but not not even try to to engage. Um, My view is it's always better to keep a hand in the game 
than to withdraw entirely. But I do, th- I do think in this case that we need to uh, have made the sort of clear um, uh, statements we've, we've made about the uh, failures of the election campaign. I think one of the concerns that I have is, you know, what is the path out? Of how, if we are concerned about the nature of domestic politics in Cambodia, and we would like to see democratic reform and freer elections, is there any realistic possibility to achieve that? Should we have a strategy? Should we be thinking about you know, our engagement through that lens, or are we just simply, you know, we'll criticise, you know, when we should criticise, but otherwise look to work with them on other challenges? What's your response to that? Uh, my response to that is yes, uh, and that's where that's uh, that's where I would come out of it because we don't have the uh, capacity uh, to remake the uh, Cambodian political scene. Now, Australia has a you know a deep historic uh, interest in Cambodia. It was the efforts of Australian governments. Um, you know, driven by Gareth uh, Evans, uh, which uh, uh, led to Cambodia's um, sort of reemergence as a as a member of um, ASEAN, and um, for, you know, for that reason, it's doubly disappointing that uh, Cambodian democracy has gone the way it has. But there's uh, there's no way I can see uh, anyway, apart from making our own views clear, uh, that we can change this. Well, one possible way might be this new Australia-US-Japan trilateral partnership for infrastructure investment in the Indo-Pacific. That's a mouthful. Yes. Uh, or what we are calling the Mini-Me Belt yeah. and Road Initiative that was announced last week. So US Secretary of State Pompeo announced at the Indo-Pacific Business Forum $113 million in new funding, quote, to support foundational areas of the future, digital economy, energy and infrastructure, end quote. Pompeo positioned the new investment spending as part and parcel of the US's commitment to a free and open Indo-Pacific and being in alignment with their 2017 national security strategy. Now, while he said the vision excludes no nation, it does seem evidently intended as a response in some way to the appeal of investment and development aid from China amid concerns about China gaining political and strategic influence in the region. However, the question presents itself, you know, how much can Australia in partnership with the United States and Japan do? How much are we willing to commit in dollar terms, particularly given the tensions between President Trump's America first you know, principle slogan um, and the deep engagement with the region that would be really needed to, to respond to um, the BRI initiative? Now, this announcement led to some fairly impressive trolling by Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi who was quoted as saying, quote, when I first heard this figure of 113 million, I thought I heard it wrong. At least it should be 10 times higher for a superpower with a 16 trillion uh, economy of GDP. Alan, he's right, isn't he? Uh, yes, he is right, Darren. I think, um, uh, I mean, you know, maybe the argument is that this was a, uh, a start and there, you know, you have to factor in other things as well and it's... Uh, you know, a, a good thing to um, to see, but it was uh, it was an announcement which was uh, very limp. Um, I thought the best estimates of what the Chinese are doing with the Belt and Road Initiative, and it's all very murky and unclear, as uh, as you've 
sort of written about yourself, uh, Darren, but somewhere between one and eight trillion dollars invested, uh, compared with, as um, Wang Yi pointed out, 113 million. Uh, and this against a need which the Asian Development uh, Bank uh, has estimated for infrastructure developments in Asia in order to maintain the same current levels of growth, so not to improve them, but to maintain current levels of growth, $26 trillion to 2030. So the need is $26 trillion. Uh, Chinese BRI, somewhere between one and eight trillion at the moment, uh, and the mini-me BRI, (laughs) million. So, yeah, long way to go, but, you know, a a very good thing uh, that uh, these... Three, three countries are getting engaged in, uh, in the provision of uh, infrastructure. What is the best case scenario? Is it that this is simply a first step towards a multi-billion, hopefully, dollar project? Or is it more to provide a template on how to do investment projects a different way? Uh, well, I, it can only be a template, uh, I think. I don't, I, don't, I don't think it's going to lead to any, um, any sort of uh, vast... Uh, um, increase at least on the size of the uh, of the Chinese uh, BRI, but it does provide um, it, it can provide an example of how you can do these things better than they're being done at the moment. And I think there's a, there are real opportunities here. I don't think the uh, Chinese um, are deaf to the uh, um, claims that uh, some of this infrastructure is uh, uh, has been poorly uh, implemented and poorly uh, devised, and they themselves have an interest in ensuring that the whole thing doesn't uh, collapse in and into an embarrassing heap. So I think I think it's good to see this involvement, but the uh, uh, the actual um, amount is um, is uh, very small. Does that mean that? We should think of it as a, a public relations loss simply because of the small amount, um, or should it have been marketed as here as a, a down payment on? Yeah, I, th- I think it sh- I think it should have been marketed in a uh, in a different uh, way. Um, and I, but I suspect we haven't heard the last of this. Okay, okay, interesting. Okay, the final uh, news item to cover is the Osmin talks, which were held on the twenty third and twenty fourth of July in San Francisco. Um, now, with much ado about 100 years of mateship between Australia and the United States, uh, we had the foreign and defence ministers from both countries meeting at these yearly talks. Now, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo declared the relationship rock solid and Defence Secretary uh, Jim Mattis said that, quote, the US and Australia will walk the walk in the Indo-Pacific. Now, these talks are normally fairly boring affairs, um, but this year's talks occurred at a somewhat precarious time in our 100 years of mateship, as Ambassador Joe Hockey likes to proclaim. And I'm going to quote our own Foreign Minister, Julie Bishop, in a speech she made uh, in London at Chatham House last month. And this is a full quote. Our closest ally and the world's most powerful nation is being seen as less predictable and less committed to the international order it pioneered. There is an increasing tendency for nations to take a one-sided, unilateral approach to some of their international interests, including economic interests. The US is now favouring a more disruptive, often unilateral foreign trade policy that has hardened anxiety about its commitment to the rules-based order that it established, protected 
and guaranteed. So my first question, Alan, is what do you think Bishop was trying to achieve here with these public remarks? Who was the audience? And are these the kind of sentiments that you would expect to have been communicated behind closed doors in San Francisco or or not? Well, I think it was a very uh, uh, interestingly direct statement uh, by the minister. The audience was obviously a public audience. She was she was giving it in uh, a, you know very prestigious uh, venue in uh, in London at Chatham House, uh, and um, and the uh, she wanted to get the uh, the message out. It was a uh, more considered. Uh, careful line than we've sometimes heard before uh, from uh, from government uh, ministers and uh, and people on the opposition. But it re- reflects, I think, an underlying reality which uh, all Australian policymakers are having to uh, to come to uh, to terms with. So uh, I think she was uh, she was giving an honest and serious description of the world. Which Australian policymakers are seeing, whether she conveyed this in the same way in, um, uh, in San Francisco, um, I don't know. I suspect so in the uh, in the private uh, one-on-one uh, talks. Well, this sort of leads into our the final part of today's episode, which is a, a bit of a deeper dive into the question of the U.S.-Australia alliance relationship and how worried should we be about U.S. decline. And I want to give another set of quotes to you, this time from Shadow Foreign Minister Penny Wong, uh, who also gave a speech last month in July at the United States Study Centre at Sydney University, no less. And she said that the White House's conduct, quote, evinces a rejection, at least in part, of the rules and norms to which we have become accustomed, end quote, but that, quote, without the US, this simply won't happen. The US remains an indispensable nation in our region. And then also that beyond military and economic power, the U.S. also matters in the region because of its values and what it represents. So I want to start with a purely descriptive question. In your judgment, where are we at politically in this country right now regarding the future of the alliance? Do you think? Do you see agreement between the major parties on what Australia should be doing in the short to medium term? Uh, look, I think there's a long-standing tradition of bipartisan agreement on the alliance from both sides of politics in uh, in Australia, Australia is, I think, the only Western US ally in which both sides of politics claim ownership <laughs> of the alliance. Every, uh, you know, Penny Wong's speech uh, began with uh, Curtin and the turn to America. Uh, Julie Bishop begins with uh, Robert Menzies mm-hmm. and Percy Spender and the ANZUS Treaty. That's uh, that's very unusual. It represents. Uh, the deep underlying support in Australia for the alliance. We will have seen in the uh, Lowy poll uh, again this year. That's utterly consistent figure of you know somewhere between uh, goes up and down maybe a, a percentage point, but uh, uh, you know seventy five to eighty percent of Australians believe that the U.S. alliance is important or very important to Australia's security. That's completely different from the view we take of the US. If you ask questions about what do you think of President Trump or even what you think of the United States, the uh, the polls are much more volatile. But that underlying support for the, uh, for the alliance is a deep reality of Australian politics and both uh, sides of politics uh, acknowledge it. I don't think there was... 
I, I think there were interesting similarities in the subtexts in both uh, Penny Wong's and Julie Bishop's uh, uh, speeches. Uh, that is, both sides continue to support the alliance, but there are underlying worries about where all this is going. Okay, well, speaking of these worries, the next question is to what extent are these worries unique to Donald Trump himself or are they broader? Now, there was a very interesting article a few days ago in early August in the New York Times that was titled, There is Trump's Foreign Policy and Then There is His Administration's. And the piece points out strikingly different messages coming out of the White House and Trump himself versus those made by his officials in the broader executive and different departments of the US government. And this article, this, this, this piece highlights a debate that you know, we have in the international relations literature about whether leaders themselves really matter and if so, when do they matter? And the argument goes that leaders might not matter very much and that what really matters is the broader national interests of states themselves, um, you know, domestic politics of the issue, underlying security threats, existential questions, and not the idiosyncrasies or the personal pathologies of any individual leader. Um, how much does Trump matter? Do you buy the argument that, that given the disagreement and the diversions between Trump himself and the White House and the administration, perhaps there is still an underlying ballast towards some version of the status quo rather than the very dystopic vision that sometimes comes out of Trump's mouth? I look, with due respect to IR theorists, <laughs> Darren, and even sitting here at the ANU, it is only an international relations theorist who could uh, claim that leaders uh, don't matter. Of course, leaders matter because they uh, set the tone. It's a very, it's a, it's, for a practitioner, <laughs> it's always been one of the most peculiar things about uh, the way in which. Um, uh, I are th some some IR theorists think, yeah, of course leaders matter, and of course Donald Trump matters, and of course uh, he is going to have more impact than the mid-level or even senior-level officials who um, who might have different uh, views about the uh, the world. Uh, so I think we have to uh, take the. United States Constitution seriously, and I think we have to accept that the uh, tone and direction of foreign policy is going to be set by the president. And all the early hopes in Canberra that uh, and and elsewhere that the sort of coalition of the grown-ups would somehow uh, corral the president and uh, and keep him uh, in his place, uh, I don't uh, buy that. Well, let me let me push or push you a little bit further on this and paint what is you know, an optimistic scenario, possibly a foolishly optimistic one, uh, or maybe a couple of scenarios. And the first scenario is that Trump is an aberration, and he was elected due to a fairly crazy set of events. You know, eighty thousand odd votes going the wrong way in three states, a historically unpopular opponent Hillary Clinton, you know, some poor judgments by senior officials like James Comey, and, and obviously Russian interference. But in this optimistic scenario, you know, the GOP gets thumped in the upcoming midterm elections later this year in November, and then Trump himself uh, loses in dramatic and you know, clear fashion the election in 2020. He loses re-election in 2020. And, so, and he's replaced by, quote-unquote, a more normal you know, politician 
who believes most of the things that US presidents have believed for the past 70 years, and the US returns to some sort of equilibrium. Does that mean that Trump's damage can be undone? I mean, is he doing enduring permanent damage to the US's position in the world? Or can these things be repaired? Uh, look, my, my view on this is that, that the United States will return to something more normal <clears throat> after after Donald Trump. I don't, I'm not 100% sure of that, but, I, but I'm pretty, I'm, uh, I'm pretty sure of it. But the new normal will be different from the past. You know, in my own view, we, we have seen already in Hillary Clinton on the Democratic side and George W. Bush on the Republican side, the high watermark of liberal inter, uh, interventionism, liberal mm-hmm. internationalism in both its um, Democrat and Republican uh, manifestations in the US. So the next set of leaders will be more familiar to us. They will talk in ways that sound more like the... Uh, the past, but the America first direction of Trumpian foreign policy uh, will continue. We won't hear uh, people arguing the case for America to uh, lay out its own treasure uh, in support of, uh, of uh, allies and, uh, and friends in distant parts of the world in, in the same way that we, uh, that we did before. So I think there's been a, um, a a fundamental shift in the way the US will look at the uh, world. And is that because of the politics of this? I mean, are you essentially saying that Trump has read the domestic politics in the US correctly regarding its international engagements, that his scepticism about the utility of NATO um, and indeed the massive military commitments that the US is making around the world is cap- you know, has a broad base of support such that a new leader, you know, someone who's more like you know, maybe President Obama, who genuinely does believe in the high watermark of liberal interventionism and wants to see America be the shining light on the hill once more, that such a leader would be constrained by politics from ever realising that vision again? Well, I think, uh, I mean, the reason I chose Hillary Clinton rather than Barack Obama was because I think that future historians will see more in common between Obama and Trump than seems remotely possible. Mm, That's a good point. uh, Now, because I think Obama was himself, his policies were themselves a response to, to an underlying power shift in the world, which means that the US... uh, both its electors and its uh, policy makers are going to be less willing to make investments in a system which is not delivering for them the sort of things that it was delivering through the 1950s and 1960s, which was, you know, included support in the uh, in the uh, in the Cold War and so on. So it's uh, it's uh, changed, I think. And. Are there circumstances in which those benefits could be seen to return? You mentioned the Cold War and there's nothing like an ideological struggle between two great powers to focus the minds of policymakers and the broader public uh, towards a goal. It's not something we want to contemplate, but if competition and animosity between the US and China grows, could that be the kind of unifying force that could see a more activist US foreign policy? Or is it simply a ca- case of dollars and cents and that there aren't the resources and therefore the political will for the US to, to, to return to that role? Well, it's, it, uh, the power shift in the world has already 
occurred. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, China is not the Soviet Union. China no. is a much larger uh, economy than the Soviet Union uh, ever was. Uh, the competition which China provides is very different from the yes. DVD logical uh, conflict of the uh, of the Cold War. So I don't think you're going to see a sort of reversion to the sort of world we saw in the uh, late 20th century. Okay, good point. So the last thing I wanted to, to raise was to bring this back, you know, into Australian foreign policy and people who are analysing, you know, the relative decline of the US and, and trying to predict what American foreign policy will look like after Donald Trump are all calling for a more independent and or creative version of Australian policy. And when I read these calls and some of these policy proposals, things like forging closer ties with democracies in the Asian region, engaging more closely and more comprehensively with our regional partners anyway, getting along better with China, all these policies seem to me in principle to be fairly good ideas and that the merit in doing them doesn't really depend upon our alliance relationship and that each of them can be evaluated on its own merits. Um, you know, there might be a slight difference in how we frame you know, our policy approach publicly, but the substantive ideas embodied in this notion of an independent policy or a more independent policy are ones we should be considering anyway, whether or not you know, 100 years of mateship becomes 200 years of mateship. Um, so the, the question I have is, you know, if, we, if there was political consensus that we did need to have a, a more independent version but we didn't want to dissolve the alliance completely. What does that look like? What would we do differently to what we're doing now? Uh, I think uh, I think what we do. Um, I, I, well, first of all, I think that that you're right. There's not you know the things that we should be doing are blindingly obvious and don't uh, don't you know depend entirely on uh, on the uh, on the uh, U, uh, U.S. Um, or our relationship uh, with the US. Uh, we need to be um, diversifying our friendships around the world. We need to be um, building coalitions with countries in parts of the world that have been remote from our policy in poor, Latin America, um, uh, Africa, and, and uh, so on, in order to try and uh, shape uh, the Order which will replace the order which is which is now um, uh, uh, evaporating, uh, but it doesn't depend, I think, on our breaking off the alliance with the United States. I don't think they think that's an option. I don't think it's sensible. Uh, if you you know, there's no reason I think why you give away one of the you know large ass- assets uh, in your in your foreign policy um, uh, for no good reason. But it doesn't mean that we should do exactly what the United States wants us to do at any given uh, point. I mean, I have some trouble with the idea that Australia needs a more independent foreign policy because we've always had one. It's uh, people who say we need a more independent foreign policy are really saying we need a different uh, foreign policy from uh, from the uh, from the one we've uh, uh, had. I think we do, uh, but the uh, way in which it will manifest itself will, you know, be through um, relationships other than the one with the United States. Maybe a charitable way of thinking about these calls for independence is to try to break 
you know, probably a, a sense of public complacency around the alliance that things have always worked this way pretty well. And mm-hmm. but you, you know, we're going to need to raise some questions about the credibility and the sustaining sustained power of the US in order to focus Australian the, the minds of the Australian public on what else might be out there. One issue, though, is that to what extent are you know calls for an independent or a changed foreign policy calls to spend more money, um, and is this a, a problem um, for political will? You know, do, do we do we think Australians can be convinced that we need to spend, you know, rather than two percent of our GDP on defence, three percent or more? Whether we need to spend you know money more money in foreign aid and and, and international engagement, um, because you know, can they can be convinced that that's necessary based on? You know, concerns with the alliance and, and where the US is going? I think they can be convinced, but someone has to try and convince them. Uh, and, uh, you know, m- my view is that we're already doing a reasonable job on the defence front. We're doing a totally inadequate job on the foreign policy front. I thought the government's foreign policy white paper last year was an, it was an excellent document analytically, but a complete failure in, uh, in, in its uh, absence of any resources to back up the things which it said were clearly necessary for Australia in the, uh, uh, in the uh, new era. So I think, and, and, and that uh, investment is not great compared with the investment in, uh, in submarines or uh, fighter aircraft, uh, but it does require us to have the uh, capacity to utilise the instruments of persuasion, and that means a larger aid um, uh, vote than we've uh, than we've got now, perhaps used in uh, in different ways. And it requires us to have the uh, capability to uh, to shape the world. Um, you're talking only about very small amounts of money here, but in order to uh, to realise that if you want to shape the future, uh, we need to be putting money, not much money, but little bits of money into, uh, into all of this now. So I, th- I, think, I think the instruments of persuasion, as opposed to the instrument, instruments of deterrence and the instruments of war fighting, uh, need a better go than they've had. And I think it's possible to argue that to the Australian people. And if it's not that much money, then presumably you're not asking a lot from the Australian taxpayer. You're really directing your appeal towards political leaders and saying you have a very large budget. It wouldn't yep. cost you a lot politically uh, to shift some resources towards these kinds of tools. Yeah, that's and, my view. Uh, interesting. Okay, well, we're almost out of time, so we're going to have one last little segment in which we provide essentially recommendations of what we are reading, listening and watching at the moment. Uh, so, Alan, what are you reading, listening or watching at, the, uh, at, this, at this point in time? Uh, mine, mine's reading. I've just... Uh, finished a, a book by the uh, Harvard uh, cognitive scientist uh, Stephen Pinker called Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism and Progress. It's 450 data-rich uh, pages on why the world is better than you think it is. And at these, in these uh, difficult times, we need a, a, a cheery note. And Pinker reminds us, for example, that the, um, uh, that the uh, um, average income in India and China now is the same as the average income for Swedes was 
average per capita income for Swedes in 1920 in India's case and 1950 in China's case. So it's a terrific, uh, terrific uh, read and a reminder uh, of uh, the values that we need to keep fighting for. Absolutely. Well, my recommendation is not quite as rosy and optimistic, but it is something I just read earlier today, and that is uh, John, the journalist and China watcher John Garneau's essay in The Monthly, uh, the Australian magazine, um, which is on China, the Chinese Communist Party, uh, and its efforts to wield influence around the world, but particularly in Australia. And his argument is that the world is watching uh, how Australia is navigating its relationship, both the opportunities and the challenges um, with China, uh, and that this is real portent for what's to come in the future. And it's quite a long read, um, but very engaging, and I think will have quite an impact um, both in Australian politics and the Australian public discourses um, and also around the world, much the same way that Hugh White's first uh, quarterly essay did um, back in 2010, also regarding China. Anyway, that is all for today's episode. We want to thank the people who helped make this possible, in particular AIIA intern Stephanie Rowell, our research assistant, and Manny Bovell, our audio engineer. We also want to thank Martin Pierce and Maya Bandari of the Crawford School for technical support and Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. That's all and see you again soon.